Welcome to Joey's Conversations. Today's conversation is with Nadia Peek from the Center for Bits and Atoms. We're going to talk about the future of manufacturing, as well as some crazy steganography that she's been working on using 3D printing. You do. I'm a stranger. Your house. <laughs> I'm Nadia Peek. Um, I'm a postdoc in the Center for Bits and Atoms. Mm-hmm. Uh, I work on machine design and automation and advanced manufacturing things. Um, and one of the things that I'm lately interested in is, you know, what is it? What's going to need to change for us to be able to do distributed manufacturing well? You know, if it used to be that one place made everything and you just bought from that one place. If now lots of different places can make things because of digital fabrication and other advances, then what does that mean for the technology mm-hmm. that needs to be developed for that? Can, can I tell you one of my new favorite stories? Yes, please. So in um, Andrew McAfee and uh, Eric Bernolfson's book, The Second Machine Age, yeah. there's this part where they talk about um, when they invent electric motors. And in the old factories, they had these steam engines in the middle of the factory. And then they had these pulleys and these axles that sort of mechanically turned things and then everything moved, right? And so they said, yay, no more pollution, a lot easier. So they put in this electric motor in the middle of the factory and left all of the pulleys and the axles and things for decades. Yeah. They didn't redesign anything. anything. And then they realized they can put the motors in the machines. So they do, but they still keep all the power in the middle of the factory and it's takes a long time before they realize that they can put the motors and all the things and just assemble sort of the the line based on the workflow rather than based yeah, on the where the power around. is, right? right. And, and so it seems like we have a lot of technology that gets invented, but then to kind of change the way we think about it takes a long time. I think so. I think that the uh, the there's a big gap also between what theoretically seems like a good idea and what is implementable mm-hmm. or becomes widespread practice. You know, if you make some kind of technology that is theoretically more efficient, but it's loud or uncomfortable or the startup costs are required, not only money, but also different kinds of expertise that are, that's difficult to attain, then mm-hmm. those kinds of changes don't happen very quickly. So mm-hmm. that's something that I think you also need to take into consideration. How do you train a labor force that's going to be working with this kind of equipment? And, you know, because you, I remember you've been to Shenzhen a, a bunch, right? And right. I think you and I might disagree on some things. So <laughs> I wanted to check because, right. like, when we go, when I, when my students go with our mutual friend Bunny, and mm-hmm. and and they hang out in the factory floor, and they <clears throat> really sort of get to know the manufacturing equipment, and hang out with the you know the manufacturing engineers and the people who actually work on the lines, and a lot of the creativity of what. You know, like, for instance, when G makes her flexible circuit sticker, she probably was able to make it because she was talking to somebody who actually understood how PCBs are made. Mm-hmm. So they could imagine, oh, yeah, you could do this and this machine could do that. And, and if you were sitting somewhere else, it would be really hard to imagine that. And so as a director's fellow, actually, we uh, can't, I haven't announced this yet. So, so it's still <laughs> secret. But, but you know, we're going to try, try to get somebody from a factory in Shenzhen to hang out at the media lab because I think we'll learn a lot. And so, you know, I, I really feel like, I can't remember, it might have been David Craner who first said this, but something like, you know, you're not a manufacturing engineer unless you have tooling grease under your fingernails, right? right it might have right. been Bunny that said that. So, 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 so to me, there's a lot of flow of, learning from the factory. But you guys, you know, at CBA make 
fab labs and crazy science, and you're sort of pushing the future of manufacturing from a, I wouldn't say top down, but from a very high tech position. And I, and I don't think they're they're opposed, but but I'm curious sort of where that meets this sort well, of well, bottom up thing that we're doing. There's two. I think there's two aspects that you have to take into consideration. <laughs> One is like just what is the react? Where do you get traction in manufacturing, and mm -hmm. how do things actually work? Mm -hmm. And you know let alone tooling grease under your fingernails. If you're talking to someone in manufacturing who doesn't even know what tooling is, then you're in trouble. Right. But uh, uh, on the other hand, there are ways in which um, innovation I don't, I don't even to... know actually what tooling grease is. I know what tooling is, but I don't know where <laughs> See, you would put the grease. you're a terrible <laughs> manufacturer. <laughs> Anytime there is surface-on-surface -surface contact. <laughs> yeah, <have> grease. Okay. <laughs> there's a... Uh, and there's another, there's another aspect to manufacturing that I think comes from standards and practice that mm -hmm. uh, best practices and those best practices need to be developed, you know, with the end goal in mind of what, what is it that you want to be able to be doing. And so um, a lot of factories in Shenzhen have a kind of system where, where workers can improve the efficiency of the factory mm -hmm. by suggesting things to their higher ups. So for example, you're soldering things all day and you're using this open solder bath and you mm -hmm. say, hey, you know, actually it would be much more efficient if the solder bath was shaped in a different way so that I could more quickly tin all of these wires. Mm -hmm. um, and then you get points for that and you can be promoted in the factory or you somehow, uh, you get rewarded for coming forward with your worker improvements. Kind of like at MIT. Kind of like at MIT, <laughs> except the opposite of what happens at MIT in practice sometimes. But <laughs> we'll talk about that later. The, uh, but uh, at the same time, for example, you know, what if you want to no longer be soldering connectors? What if you know headphones didn't need to be hand have microphones hand soldered onto them? Mm -hmm. Maybe there's some other method of manufacturing that um, will be more reliable, more precise, and more robust. Uh, and that's not necessarily going to come from the person who has to manufacture that object all the time. It's going to come from some other practice. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think that one one space where um, that's really important is in quality control, because if you have some assembly of many objects um, that together form a product, um, any individual who is working on a component of that is not necessarily thinking about how they integrate and what the system integration problems might be mm -hmm. and how um, quality control can play a role in um, the production process. And as, a, you know, sure, Shenzhen might manufacture all of the iPhones, but all of the other products that you might be using, things that um, are heavy and are much more, make more sense to manufacture locally, like cars or other mm -hmm. large objects, mm -hmm. you know, how are you going to have standardized quality control throughout all of those different sites? I think it's something, um, it's a different kind mm -hmm. of um, change and in innovation. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. there's a, there's, I think that right now there might be like a little bit of a problem where you have to know about a lot of different fields to make changes mm -hmm. and there aren't a whole lot of people who at the same time can do, can like fix a injection molding machine mm -hmm. and do finite element analysis and understand why the PCB is like melting part of your enclosure. Mm -hmm. um, but. Those are kind of, it's like a vernacular that you need to have sort of playing in your head to create an intuition to be able to make these new kinds of systems. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's it's tricky and interesting and kind of an exciting space to be in right now. So to kind of summarize a little bit, the, the, I mean, it seems like there's a lot of know-how at every layer, right? And then in Shenzhen, there's a category of integration that happens probably that you don't see if you're in the the sort of invention of the components right. business, right? right? 
But like you're saying, that doesn't help you create systemic improvements in things like quality control and standardization. Right. 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 And then also some of the components that like you're, hopefully you'll show us later, <laughs> probably wouldn't be invented in Shenzhen. But having been to Shenzhen, you probably do that. Does that no. re reality inform oh, you totally. a little bit? Absolutely. Yeah. Like, and I think that I would be, uh, I would be a, a, a totally unknowledgeable engineer if I didn't have that kind of firsthand experience. Um, but the reality of that also is that not everyone has time or money to go to mm, Shenzhen and mm, learn these things, right? Yeah. And so if right now in, you know, state school somewhere, mm -hmm. you're learning, or there's a lot of good state school, I don't know, but some other university who that doesn't have this close relationship with right. Shenzhen and its manufacturing ecosystem isn't going on these factory tours, mm. you know, if they're just learning Ford methodology, yeah. what's going to happen, you know? Yeah. That's that. I think that's the problem. How do you have? If I'm learning a lot through all of these experiences, and I have all of this sort of invisible knowledge, not super explicit, like this is the formula that I mm -hmm. learned, but this is this is a good practice or this yeah. is efficient. Then how is that kind of information shared? Yeah. And, and, and I suppose in every, well, almost anywhere where people are actually doing those things, there's a knowledge base that you. Would be hard to get somewhere else, and it just right. turns out they make a lot of different things in Shenzhen, so that's a good place to go. Right. But if you go visit, you know, GE and some of their factories where they make things that spin really right. fast, right? They'll probably have a lot of knowledge that that you can't right. get anywhere right. else, right? Plus, you know, you have to think of everyone has tolerances that they can manufacture too, mm -hmm. and that they care about. And so, if on one hand, you know, you're making selfie sticks, maybe. <laughs> It doesn't really matter if they're going to break or if they, uh, um, if they, some of them kind of come out wrong, and because like it's, the, the incremental cost for making a single selfie stick is like ordered dollars. Yeah. But if you're making, if you're GE and you're making like a centrifuge or something, then, mm -hmm. uh, well, if a centrifuge fails, people can get hurt mm -hmm. or killed, mm -hmm. and if uh, you make a centrifuge and it's bad, that's order thousands, tens of thousands of dollars as mm -hmm. a manufacturer. And so yeah. there's, there's a completely different kind of scale of mm -hmm. what is risk, what is tolerance, what, is, what constitutes failure. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. um, and, and I, I think yeah. that there needs to be a more a, a vocabulary that can describe both scenarios mm -hmm. where you say, you know, we are manufacturing and we care about mm -hmm. not that much. And we're, or we're manufacturing and like everything is really important and I need to be able to communicate with um, any supplier who's going to give me components what the requirements are in terms of uh, tolerances. And are you interested in this stuff? Are we just talking about it because I, I asked you or is that the oh, no, I think of... it's I think it's, a, it's, a, it's central in my, my field of interest right now. I'm, I'm very interested in... Are you totally apolitical on this podcast? You can you can say whatever you want because yeah. I can always. Edit I think that there's, a, there's there's like a well. So we have a new president right here in this country, and and there are a lot of things that are under. Yesterday you spoke at the March for Science, mm -hmm. and uh, and there are a lot of things that are sort of being questioned, and and there are other things that are being celebrated. Mm -hmm. And so one of the um, one of the major forces in Trump's election was a labor workforce yeah. and a uh, and and you know. Workers that no longer are being supported well by unions, their education is falling behind, and jobs are mm -hmm. either being given to robots or moving overseas or you know whatever it is. And this interest in manufacturing mm -hmm. or the idea of bringing manufacturing, you know, the, the attention that gets put in to HVAC factories or uh, 
coal mining or these these kinds of very stuff oriented businesses um it doesn't have a it doesn't necessarily have um it's not opposed to the interests that we have at a place like MIT either you know we're interested in understanding how can you um do manufacturing locally and make it such that the products that are being distributed are locally relevant as well, you know, mm-hmm. as opposed to a, um, the same solution made overseas and then shipped to everyone. And, and I think that there is a, um, there is a great need there for mm-hmm. standards and uh, understanding what the manufacturing of the future is going to look like. And if we don't have, um, and if we don't put, the time in to figure out what that's going to look like and make it good, mm-hmm. well, all those jobs are going to disappear anyway. You know, yeah, it's going to be yeah, a total yeah. disaster. So that's, that's like the one, the one part of overlap that I see with uh, the Trump administration, at least for the research agenda that I'm interested in, um, that, you know, there is something unsustainable of how we consume, mm-hmm. how we produce, and how we get rid of stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, that that's something that needs a lot of improvement and attention. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what, so one of the questions that I have is the, um, the way, so, so the, a lot of the factories actually have uh, know-how and knowledge, right? And it's kind of interesting to look at what sorts of capabilities live at what layers and what do you lose? Like we're just joking about tooling, but tooling is hard, right? When you're doing injection molding, you have to create this mold, a tool. And I remember being in Shenzhen and we were at a factory uh, with Bunny trying to get somebody to make plastic lenses. Yeah. And it's hard because it's got to be really smooth. We found this factory and they said, well, we could make it, but the number that you're making is so low that it it won't work for you. and, um, but we can make the tool. We can make for about 5,000 bucks, we can make the, the, the tool, which I don't think you're gonna be able to, and for, you won't be able to do it in America. I mean, cause not at sort of production costs, but we could ship the tool to California where we know a bunch of factories that could do it for you much cheaper than we can do it in Shenzhen, right. which was kind of amazing, right? Cause you think of Shenzhen as a place that was supposed to be cheap. And the fact that we, he, I don't know if it's true, but he was asserting that the, in the U.S., you could get to some sort of bespoke, super high cost facility, but that a normal factory wouldn't be able to make the quality tool that, that he could make. And, and that we had, we have lost that piece. Is that, how do, does that, is well, that a generalizable? Know, I don't know if that's generalizable to, to, to just like California versus Shenzhen and, but there are a lot of things that go into, into, uh, assessing whether or not you want to do a job. Right. And one mm-hmm. of it is like, how much time is this going to take me? How much money am I going to make off of it? And, mm-hmm. uh, um, and, uh, is it going to be like a repeat thing? If, mm-hmm. uh, you want to do some experimental injection molding of ultra clear plastics, you know, there is a lot of, you know, process development that's going to have to go mm-hmm. into this. How do we make sure that we don't get any, uh, any kind of artifacts in, in, in the shot and, and how do we make sure that um, things come out smooth. And so just to be able to get that process up and running, people in that factory are going to have to learn mm-hmm. about your tool and your requirements and then figure that out. And if you say, I want a thousand pieces, they're like, okay, after we invest mm-hmm. our time and expertise into figuring out what process works for you, mm-hmm. you're only going to like want us to run the tool for two days. So, right. you know, we don't have no, ain't nobody got the time for that. We want you to go somewhere else where you're going to have a 
partnership with someone who is interested in your kinds of processes, developing them with you, and you're going to have an ongoing relationship mm -hmm. with that manufacturer. I think that uh, um, it makes a lot of sense to do that in a time zone that's not 12 hours different from yours yeah. if you're going to have to have a lot of back and forth communication about the requirements for it. If, on the other hand, what you wanted was anime figurines or something, then they're like, all right, we got this. We know. <laughs> we got to do this. So, so. So, so, so do you not think that Shenzhen's like some Silicon Valley for manufacturing? Do you think that it's going to happen all over the place? And Well, I think the big difference between Shenzhen right now and everywhere else is that Shenzhen is doing it. You know, mm -hmm. like hoverboards, selfies, you know, all these sort of like hardware memes. Yeah. They're like, yeah, we'll do this, make more of this. Like they're kind of playing around and, and in that, it's also, I have a lot of affinity with it because it's also how I work where I'm like, oh, let me just like build a thing you and see if it works. You have a lot of selfie sticks, I bet. Oh, I don't have any <laughs> selfie sticks. You keep sticks. talking about them anyway. I think, that sel the, I think that the selfie stick is like a really fascinating piece of hardware because, you know, there's just like this need that was then met by so many different manufacturers. It wasn't like there was a, an Apple or something who was like, you know what the world needs now? An extension of their arm. <laughs> but if it's because everyone was taking pictures with their cell phones, it became this requirement. And then um, in a distributed fashion, lots of people independently started manufacturing this totally silly object, you know, mm -hmm. which is a, now a market for selfie sticks. You can buy them at the gas station. And so I'm really fascinated by those kinds of bottom-up emergent mm -hmm. objects. Um, yeah, these kind of like like the hoverboard no one really needs it but it's so cool and like people like it and you get the ones that have like lights on them or a boom box or and and how like features get added and everything gets bloated and crazy you know I love, but, but I that love it. kind of innovation works well in shenzhen doesn't it because it's got a very fast turnaround <laughs> totally, cycle right totally yeah and so you can constantly be like well the market didn't really like the pink selfie sticks so we're gonna make a red one now you know it's this this sort of and I guess it meshes well with my interests, which are in low volume. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm interested in how can you do highly complex, high-tech objects, but don't need a high volume to offset the upstart or like, you, you know, the manufacturing startup costs for your process mm -hmm. development, et cetera. It's, it's expensive. And, and mm -hmm. so how do you make it unnecessary? You know, how do you reduce the threshold from where you're going to start? employing mm -hmm. manufacturing technology to make your stuff as opposed to uh, doing everything bespoke. So uh, let's a answer one question and pivot to your 3D printing. So, so what are some examples of this future manufacturing look like that could be based in America? Okay, well, um, I think that I was talking to a friend of mine, um, Gonzalo Ray, who is the CTO of Moog Aerosystems, mm -hmm. a uh, 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 aerospace company. They're based in um, Buffalo, near Buffalo, New York. And, uh, and they do crazy manufacturing. They have like incredible machines. They bought an EOS, you know, titanium um, laser centering 3D printer. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were like, wow, the tolerances on this thing are terrible. We're going to take out the two millimeter steel build plates and replace, replace them with two inch titanium steel build plates because it'll make everything better. You know, so that's the kind of people that they are. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and they're worried because, uh, they make things for, they make medical devices, they make things for the military, you know, none of the stuff that they do is high volume and they're not going to be able to maintain all of their manufacturing facilities mm -hmm. um, with uh, the workflow slowly um, aging out and the, the people who are skilled in, in doing these things um, not keeping their jobs and other people going into other 
other industries. So one thing that they're also interested in is uh, is what is distributed manufacturing going to look like in the future? And uh, Gonzalo showed me this uh, um, study that was being done by the Manufacturing Institute of America. Um, and it turns out that more than half, there are like maybe 200,000 manufacturing organizations in the United States or like companies that do manufacturing. And more than 100,000 of those have um, four employees or less. And so most of them are tiny. Mm -hmm. And how are you going to enhance their capabilities? I think that that's the most interesting space. So the question is, um, what are some of the examples of this future manufacturing and what it could look like? I think that if you take all of those, if you go and visit those, those shops, the, mm-hmm. the four employee shops, mom and pop kind of uh, places, maybe they have like a mill or like a water jet or something. And, and how do you augment capabilities at that level? Because mm-hmm. that's where you have by far the most um, people who mm-hmm. are also interested in growing their output. Mm-hmm. And you know what? Are, what are the technologies that they need? I think that you can start out with that by just visiting them and saying, like, well, mm-hmm. you know, what is what is going to help you um, improve your business? And uh, one of the, uh, you know, Universal Robots—they make the blue and aluminum robot arms. Okay, well, they're robot arms. You have a bunch of them in the shop, and uh, they're not on people. They're shop. Arms. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just I'm just imitating a robot, Joey. <laughs> yeah, and so one their business model is not like here are the specs for a robot arm, and you buy a robot arm, and you go uh, uh, into the um, and, and and you go into your shop and you and you apply it yourself. They have you know a lot of application engineers that work with you to figure out what the application is of the robot arm, and they help you figure out the process. So mm-hmm. the thing where like. In China, they didn't want to help you figure out the process for your injection-molded lens. Their business model, Universal Robots' business model, is having an engineer with you in the beginning to help you do workflow mm-hmm. refinement, and then afterwards, oh, you keep running mm-hmm. with the robot arm. And so I think that robot arms have some good applications, like you know, you made a part, and I pick it up, and I put it over here, and maybe a second process takes place on it, mm-hmm. or... you know. But robot arms, you know, they, they kind of operate out over here. And so the amount of precision that you have over here at the end, there's a lot of compliance in the arm, and you, you end up not with super high, highly precise things. So you know, how else can we have um, automation, and how do you make it as easily as possible to do that workflow development mm-hmm. part where mm-hmm. you're like, oh, this needs to like move over a little bit, or I need this to like main, be maintained at a, at, a, at a more precise temperature, or... Um, it needs to be more like JavaScript or something. Right now, it's like you write everything in COBOL and like you wait for a long time and then you turn it on and it runs. It needs to not be like that. Mm-hmm. It needs to be more like, oh, you know, I need to add a thing that will nudge it at this point, mm-hmm. or I'm going to need to add something that'll pick it up after this point, or checks this. And, mm-hmm. and uh, um, I don't know. Those are those are all technologies that I think are going to be difficult to develop in industry um, because any given place, any of these 100,000 manufacturing facilities doesn't have the resources to pour into that Mm -hmm. kind of Mm R&D. And so my hope is that universities, government agencies, you know, are going to continue figuring out what the standards are for that and develop um, a body of best practices that enables rapid automation Mm -hmm. um, in that way. And and that's how I believe Mm -hmm. to finally answer your question. Um, what future manufacturing could look like, 
lots of tiny places doing highly advanced things at mm -hmm. low volume. Mm -hmm. So do you want to talk about, are we allowed to talk about your thingy? Yeah, sure. It's because it's not, is it, it's unpublished, but My, that's okay. Uh, I think so. I, uh, um, I don't know if I'm actually going to be able to run this printer right now because it's okay. Do you want to show any of these slides? Uh, sure. Which is a good one. Yeah, that's the, that's the slide that Gonzalo shared with me at the, time, at the same time with the, where you can see that there's like 107,000 um, manufacturing places that? that have less than four employees. Oops, it's scrolling through the slides. Well, fun. We okay. can talk really fast. It'll be like Pesha Kucha. So steganography, one of the things that I'm interested in, mm -hmm. let's, let's go on a little tangent. Okay. You remember the Unabomber? Yes. So the FBI has um, a bunch, they have like a database of stuff. Mm -hmm. So like screws and glue and materials so that if you, for example, made a bomb mm -hmm. and they found bits of that bomb, they're like, oh, you got these screws from here and like you must be located in... You know, Massachusetts, because like mm -hmm. this screw is part of a, and uh, one thing that was, uh, one thing that was apparently crazy about the Unabomber was mm -hmm. he was really worried about that kind of tracking. And mm -hmm. so he made all of his own fasteners and washers and stuff. So mm. the bombs that he made, they would find the materials from them and be like, this is untraceable. We didn't, we have not seen any of these parts before. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, now then manufacturing um, was that in such a way that you could maybe have a exhaustive inventory of parts and where they came from and what was cool about them. But, uh, um, now I think that that's really infeasible, you know, parts are being made all over the place and mm -hmm. you can't necessarily have one of each batch, you know, how do you maintain that kind of inventory? But it's still not only for law enforcement purposes, but also for your own quality control. Interesting to know where things came from. Mm -hmm. And if you're doing like an airplane and a fastener fails, you want to know where that fastener was manufactured and how you can improve that right. process. Um, and so I was interested in figuring out how do you embed information about um, how do you embed information about uh, uh, the origins of a part into the part itself. Mm -hmm. And so that's one thing that can be done with barcodes, or people do it a lot with. Uh, uh, other kinds of RFID was a, a big, a big uh, component of it was like tracking. Mm -hmm. uh, but if digital fabrication means computer numeric control of machines, mm -hmm. and every time you then make something, you could embed a message in just the, the toolpath. Mm -hmm. And so um, you were an advisor to the Berkman Klein mm -hmm. assembly. This was the uh, first assembly. And the Berkman Klein Center is uh, uh, interested in internet and society research, based at Harvard. And I was involved with their first assembly, which focused on security. Um, and if we can't really trust any of the things that we are manufacturing or that we're our devices, then you know what what does that mean for the future? That was the question that I was exploring with uh, sixteen other assemblers. Mm -hmm. And um, I decided to look more carefully at digital fabrication and embedding messages and drew from steganography. Do you know what steganography is? Do you think the everyone I do, on the but internet? you should explain. So did you have a slide about that? Yeah, you can show Except that they all go for about five seconds and they move to, <laughs> <laughs> move to the next one. Um, Interesting technology. I can just explain what steganography okay. is. It's okay. Um, so steganography is the art of hiding messages. So apparently, uh, um, 
canonical example is, you know, I want a messenger to send a message to someone else, um, and it's like ancient Greece or something, mm -hmm. and uh, I don't want to tell you the message, so I shave your head, tattoo it on the back of your head, wait for your hair to grow out, and then you walk over to the person who's receiving the message. The message is hidden, but the person knows that they need to shave your head, and they see the hidden message. Mm -hmm. So that's like the, uh, the old example of what steganography is. But there are other ways in which you can embed messages in plain sight. So this mm -hmm. is not cryptography. This mm -hmm. is not um, this is not encoding things, but it's a, it's hiding messages in plain sight. So take for example this JPEG image for or as a uh, yeah sure the uh, as a simplified example. I'm not I won't explain it exactly for JPEGs, but you can imagine for bitmap images there is um, a number that describes each. Mm -hmm pixel, and uh, if you would modify one of the numbers slightly to encode the message, and you had the original image, but also the new image, they look the same, and you, you think, oh, someone mm -hmm. is just sending me a picture of uh, a 1973 Playboy centerfold. <laughs> That's what that image is. It's used, it's used constantly in computer vision research, which is sort of annoying. This one. Um, but actually, they're different images. And so if I compared them both, I'm like, OK, well, this bit is different, this bit is different, this bit is different. And if you accumulate all of those different bits, then you have the encoding of a message. So it's like, OK, well, that's a, clever, that's a clever way to encode messages. Can we do something similar um, for 3D printing? So, so I'm going to use this bug as a feature and see if you can actually do five seconds on each slide. Kucha, Kucha, do you think you can do that? Sure. From here? OK. So we'll start with. This image. Okay, go. <laughs> okay, so here you have a Stego image um, and a regular image, and I want to see if you can do it with 3D printers. There are so many 3D printers out in the world now, and a lot of them work by squeezing out material layer by layer. And so instead of um, embedding barcodes, <laughs> like some people want, <laughs> yeah, pause it for a second. This is a uh, that was a uh, a patent that was filed by people, I think from Adobe or maybe by Xerox, where they're like, oh, we're also going to do steganography. But this is not steganography. That's not hidden at all. That's just finding an empty space on the bottom of a 3D printed object. If a 3D printed object looks like that, how are you going to embed a barcode onto it? So instead of adding it to the 3D, pr the 3D printed model itself, can you embed it directly into the machine code, which I think is a more interesting method because um, it has a lot of it has a lot to do with machine specificity, uh, and so I'm interested in modifying machine code to embed hidden messages, mm -hmm. and I made a bunch of uh, examples of that for um, the Berkman Klein assembly. Uh, so, for example, this rectangle. You can hold that up. One second. Let me choose a good one. This rectangle, I put it on the on the center of this flat face so that it was extra obvious where the message was. Mm -hmm. um, has the series of bumps. So if you read it in the Z um, from the top to the bottom, then you have all of these bits that are encoded. Mm -hmm. And then if you knew that you were looking for a message here, you could read back, back those bits, mm -hmm. uh, those bits, excuse me, and decode um, and decode them to figure out what this object says. Mm -hmm. And maybe the object says I was manufactured on April. 23rd, 2017, um, with this material. It was mm -hmm. this temperature in the factory. Uh, these were the people that were working on the machine at the time. And right here, it is on the face, so you can see it pretty well. Mm -hmm. Or people on the internet probably can't see it. I'll put it in front of here. Okay, I'm gonna move that. Here. There we go. Yeah, it's not focusing. Well, that's actually kind of good for the message, so you can see that it's sort of hidden here. But 
can, do you think that it can see that there's bumps? No. No. The internet says no. <laughs> um, well, here's one where instead of on the face of it, it's on the corner. So like on the corner of the object, um, you have an encoding of bits. Mm -hmm. And so if you select the ideal, so you can put that thing away again. The, if you select the ideal um, location on the 3D print, um, mm -hmm. then you can encode a lot of different kinds of information. Yeah, so here you can say enhance, enhance. Law and order says enhance. <laughs> And now it doesn't want to move one slide every five seconds. There it goes. Um, oh, yeah, because there's the same one. Um, the, uh, um, or if you want to read back the bits. So this, this particular object just says Berkman Klein assembly. You could also mm -hmm. put um, the bumps on the inside rather than on the outside. Um, and then you would read them back with x-rays instead of um, with optical methods. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's more or less like what that, that's that short experiment in, mm -hmm. uh, in the Berkman Klein assembly was for. There are a lot of other very cool projects that came out of that cohort, though. Mm -hmm. um, for example, Nathan Freitas, he did a the Data is Toxic project, mm -hmm. um, which I thought was uh, maybe more more relevant to a broader swath of society. Mm -hmm. But I'm kind of weird, so I had to work somewhere. And <laughs> but, but so th this idea of hiding a binary message in a 3D printed object, had, had, has anybody done that before? I don't think so. People have patented things around it, mm -hmm. but as far as I can tell, it's just kind of upping patent arsenals, and mm -hmm. people haven't actually used it. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that there, it's a, it's something that is particularly relevant right now as digital fabrication becomes more commonplace yeah. in regular manufacturing. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, it's a, uh, yeah, it, it's a good time to be be experimenting in this yeah. space. And I guess. A cell phone camera should be good enough for certain types of patterns. I think right? so. I, mean, I think that you would. Uh, I didn't. I didn't write a uh, cell phone app for decoding these messages, um, and I used a larger camera to mm -hmm. take pictures to be able to show the bumps. Yeah. But I think that uh, there are right now these objects or these squares that we have lying on the table. They just have messages encoded directly, right? Mm -hmm. But if you look at like the CD, for example. Uh, messages are actually uh, embedded in error correcting codes. And so what mm -hmm, you want mm -hmm. is, uh, is instead of the bits to be the message, mm -hmm. instead you put in a polynomial and the message is the coefficients of the polynomial. Mm -hmm. And as you fit a polynomial to the curve, then uh, even if some of the bits are destroyed or some mm -hmm. of the bits are damaged or not there, you can still extract the message mm -hmm. um, afterwards. So those kinds of error correcting codes, mm -hmm. I think, would also make it easier yeah. to have low-cost optical readout mm -hmm. of um, these kinds of patterns. So that's the next part of this research project. Because, uh, <laughs> because I think one of the things that, you know, that's neat is if you can create a closed loop from the manufacturing to the site to a cell phone back again. Yep. I mean, there was one, I, I guess I'm allowed to talk about it because it's my idea, um, but I was <laughs> in a conversation about um, I'll try to abstract a little bit, but in c certain countries, they are supposed to vaccinate people. And the problem is they use the same needle again. And, uh, and the needles kind of pile up there because they're paying. Um, but my idea was, instead of trying to figure out how to fix corruption, why don't you turn each used needle into currency? So if each right. used needle had unique ID that you could verify with a phone, which would probably right. be a little hard but because it's small. But then if you had to turn in the needles in order to get paid, then you'd create an incentive to generate needles. But you'd also eliminate a whole set of corruption because the thing, there's no money until the needle 
closes a loop at the end with somebody with a cell phone, right? Yep. So I think you could start turning, and this ties to this interest that I have in digital currencies, which is you could sort of turn anything into a currency. Right. And if you think about having like two sides of a bond, like if you said, okay, in order for person A and person B to, and we, we actually, this was Kevin Slave, and I see he's watching, so I can um, give him a, a, a shout out. But Kevin did this um, uh, project for the Knight Foundation called Making Money for Macon, Georgia. Huh. And, uh, but the thing that was cool about it was they gave everybody these bonds where you everybody would get half a bond. And they gave them to a very diverse set of people. So some kid from one community and some um, adult from another community who'd never otherwise meet had to find each other, take the two sides of the bond to a local business, and they could get their burger or whatever right, it is. Right, right. right? And, and so you can imagine also kind of having these you know, th these sorts of codes on different things. Right. And then start nudging behavior that way, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. I did that for a bar once. You could buy a, a bag of tokens. This is at Mediamatic in Amsterdam. Mm -hmm. um, you buy a bag of tokens of different colors, but uh, they were they had the monetary value of 10 euros, mm -hmm. but none of the combinations of colors could get you any drinks. So then you'd have to trade with other people oh, to be able to get the colors, yeah. to be able to buy a drink. And it was to foster social interaction yeah. at the bar, as if that was already <laughs> Solving a real social need. There's something here with selfie sticks and, yeah. <laughs> and helping, people, helping people in Amsterdam drink more. Or drink more or talk to people while they're drinking, <laughs> specifically. No, but I think that there is something, uh, the, uh, the interplay between digital information and physical objects mm -hmm. that is really um, something that could really be a reality yeah. in not only academia right. right now. And I see Madaris is watching too, and he's the zero knowledge proofs uh, kid at MIT. But um, technically, Shafi is the zero. Shafi is okay. But, <laughs> but uh, well, there, he's one of the one of the pile of. But but we could. I think we're allowed to take credit at MIT broadly for. For zero knowledge. knowledge proofs, right? Well, I think that Shafi Goldwasser yeah, gets yeah. to take credit okay. for cryptography, yes. and she happens to work at MIT. So, yeah. thanks, yeah. Shafi. It's funny <laughs> when 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 MIT gets takes credit for the number of Nobel prizes. I think it's like sixty eight. Yeah. They include like alums and like people who were friends. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it was like when Marie Curie accepted her Nobel prize, and then afterwards, the French, uh, the university that she was at, also gave her a prize, oh, and she was funny. like, "It's about." Fucking time, guys! Oh, am I allowed to swear on your? Uh... You can do whatever you want. Um, but but no. But Madaris has been working a lot on sort of applying zero knowledge proofs, and I think you can do them more now because the computation and the networks have gotten better, right? And right. so one of the things I was thinking about, you know, when I was watching your presentation was, you know, there's a couple of different like there's first of all, steganography generally in the like was to try to hide stuff, but you can also use what you're doing to create like a watermark to prove the thing and you can actually probably make it visible. Right. But then, you know, you can sort of start to hide things inside of things that are visible, right? Right, and, right. And one of the things that Madaris talks a lot about is sort of these like multiple layers of things, like, like you might send data and some information might be the size of the data packet, but another piece of information might be um, what's inside of it, and another piece of information might be hidden inside of that. That's sort of, you could These have layers multi layers. Yeah, definitely. Right? I think, and the combination of steganography and cryptography and watermarking, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of richness to the space and, and of what information you can embed. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. And as a person who prefers tooling grease under their fingernails <laughs> rather than trying to figure out proofs that other people are better at, I'm gonna I will I will defer to Madaris to let me know what yeah. the best kind of information is that I should be embedding into these kinds of, um, of spaces. But I think that there definitely is um, 
uh, a lot of different kinds of applications and that just hiding messages might not yeah. be enough, that you also might want to right. encrypt them, that you also might want them um, to say something that can only be read by a certain group of people, et cetera. And, and you're, you've sort of generated here Nadia's Wiggle principle, protocol, yeah. But, yeah. but you could embed a lot of information in all different levels of things, yeah, yeah, like yeah. This, the, the shape or the... Well, and I also don't think that this is only... I just happened to do it, this was like a three-week or two-week project for this, uh, for this cohort. extended hackathon. Uh, yeah, and, uh, and, and, and it didn't actually take me two weeks. It's just the amount of time... In but which you it had took left place. over. <laughs> well, no, I always say uh, uh, I had, you know, I have a, have a day job sometimes too. The, uh, 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 but there are other digital fabrication methods that you can encode information into. For example, in a milling machine, if you're going to wiggle the milling machine as it's milling, that mm -hmm. it creates sort of mm -hmm. a mark on the surface, like the grain of the object. Um, or if you want to do things with lasers, uh, mm -hmm. you can do the same mm -hmm. kind of wiggle. And as different things are manufactured using different computer-controlled um, machines, mm -hmm. then that computer can control the machine to embed all kinds of extra information mm -hmm. um, and not just uh, try to approximate um, the original design file as mm -hmm. accurately as possible. So it, it, it's funny how it ties back to the name of your uh, center, the Center for Bits, bits and, and Atoms, atoms. because yeah. it really is kind of embedding information into bits that sort of then bring back yeah um, the uh, the the understanding of the interplay between the physical world and the digital world i think is uh the founding uh, principle of the center for bits and atoms but people go all over the place there anyway yeah. neil just talks about ribosomes all the time now yeah, yeah. and uh I'm just I'm just trying to put code into material, but he's trying to have codes describe materials entirely and have everything be built up the way DNA codes proteins. Mm -hmm. um, What's but, that thing? The is it the sort of the DNA? The is it because well, it's having ro robots be like units of robosomes. Of robosomes. <laughs> he calls them robosomes. <laughs> having robots build up. A, well, there and, and there are a lot of really cool people doing work in this space. You know, it's not it's not that far in the future. Um, Kenny Chung, who's now at NASA Ames, who used to be at the Center for Business Atoms, he has like a whole bunch of people working on assembly of digital materials, so materials that can be assembled in different mm -hmm. configurations, specifically for space travel. You know, if we're gonna if we're gonna colonize, there are people who think we're gonna colonize Mars. I believe that the word colonize is somewhat problematic and mm -hmm. has a history of uh, bad behavior. Yeah. But whatever we're gonna do on Mars, we might need structures there. And so can you take, for example, the material that's in place and mm -hmm. use it to build um, yeah. structures, technology, things that you might need mm -hmm. when you get there. Cool. Well, we're sort of getting to the end of our recommended time. I don't know if there's any last idea you wanna share or... Any last ideas I wanna share in like 30 seconds? <laughs> Probably not. I think. Uh, the idea, though, of uh, you know, how can you make automation as easy mm -hmm. as writing a script? Mm -hmm. That's what I... But writing a script isn't easy for everyone. Well, that's a failure on the part of you guys, educators. <laughs> Sheesh. <laughs> you're, you're, you're kind of headed into that, so be careful. Uh, yeah, I'll see what that... Yeah. Well, if you don't like something, then you change it, right? Yeah. That's... But no, but I, yeah, I, 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 I suppose that's a different layer of the stack that we have people working on, which is making coding um, easier. easier. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, and I think that maybe writing particular kinds of scripts is not easy. Uh, you know, last, uh, 
on Saturday and Friday of this week, there was mm -hmm. the Being Material Symposium organized by Skylar Tibbetts mm -hmm. at, uh, mm -hmm. and CAST. And uh, um, Casey Rees and Ben Fry were there mm -hmm. who developed processing. Yep. And uh, at some point, Casey shows on, uh, on screen the amount of code he had to write before processing to draw a square. And it was just like a whole bunch of nonsense, right? right but right. if you would think right now, without thinking in any particular programming language, like what would you need to specify to draw a square? Mm -hmm. You're like, eh. Mm -hmm. Two points, mm -hmm. or one point and a size, you know, and uh, and so I think that coding is not conceptually a big step, but the interpretation from what the intention of the person is mm -hmm. to what the technical structure is that they produce mm -hmm. that can be a big step if we make all of that infrastructure crappy. Yeah. So yeah. what we need to do is not make it crappy. Let's, let's end on that. Let's make, let's make everything not crappy. Let's make everything not crappy and then it'll be fun. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, <laughs> Nadia. Thanks, Joey. <laughs> Bye, Internet. Bye, everybody.